By the way, throughout this talk, even though I'm not going to explicitly talk a lot about machine learning and AI, I'm kind of talking about it all the time throughout this talk in the sense that when I say algorithm in this talk, almost always um, the algorithms that I'm talking about are actually really what we would more accurately call models, by which I mean they are models, usually models trained from data that are making predictions or decisions about things. And so they are the product, they're really more like the output of algorithms because you know, data was given to some algorithm like backpropagation for neural networks, which then trained a neural network. And the neural network is the thing that's actually deployed in making decisions about things like whether you get a loan or whether you get admitted to the University of Pennsylvania or what criminal sentence you should receive. Okay, and so um, Aaron, this is kind of our background and and the types of problems that we're interested in. And we found ourselves, especially in the last you know five years or so thinking more and more not just about machine learning and sort of what you can say about it from an algorithmic standpoint and how you design good algorithms, but in particular about how you design algorithms that come with some sort of social values embedded in the algorithm itself. Okay, and I'll say more about this as I go. But you know, the problem, if you like, that um, Aaron and I and our many colleagues in the machine learning community are trying to address are things that you read about every day in the mainstream media. It's about algorithms that in one sense or another violate people's individual privacy and leak or reveal their data in some unwanted way. It's about algorithms that demonstrate discriminatory behavior against racial or gender or other groups and other sorts of violations of social norms. And I don't think I need to say a lot about that to this audience because you know there's so much activity going on in this, especially in the regulatory and legal space. And I would characterize most of that activity these days as hand wringing, and I've read many, many, you know, sort of manifestos or documents about, you know, what we should do about these things that basically use terms like fairness, transparency, interpretability, and the like, and never define those terms at all, and sort of push them around on the page in a way that sort of doesn't mean anything until you actually decide what you mean by those terms. Okay, so obviously I have strong opinions about this. And this, I think, is one of the areas in which the, the relative value of kind of formal, not you know, theoretical thinking is, is relatively high. Because if you're going to talk about what you mean by fairness, and if you're going to talk about what you mean by privacy, and you're going to try to implement it at the algorithmic level or regulate it at the algorithmic level, you need to be very, very precise. And often by trying to be precise about these sort of social norms, if you like, you often discover flaws in your thinking about these topics that weren't revealed to you until you had to really say what you meant by privacy. <coughs> okay, So that's sort of the backdrop of what I want to talk to you about today. And when I say I want to emphasize the science in the subtitle, I really mean I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about laws and regulations and watchdog groups and what we should do about these things in our human institutions. I'm really here to talk, to sort of survey for you um, a lot of recent science, much of it in the machine learning, AI, and related communities, about how we might design algorithms to be better in the first place. Okay, and I'm not I'm not here to tell you that you know more algorithms are the only solution to the kind of social ills that have been wrought been wrought by other algorithms. But I you know I think we are firmly of the belief that it has to be an important part of the problem. Um, because all of these other ways of dealing with things like laws, regulations, and watchdog groups are either, in our view, sort of too slow to keep up with technology, 
or they don't scale. You just kind of can't monitor algorithmic decision making at the scale that's taking place in society without having technological tools on your side as well. Okay, so that's sort of the backdrop. Um, you know, another way of thinking about the book that we've written is that it's in some ways a response to other recent books that we've read and some of them that we haven't, but that we think well of, but we think of these books as primarily identifying the problems clearly without really saying much about what the scientific or technological solutions to those problems might look like. So you may have read books like uh, it seems to be important to have sort of a clever title. So, you know, Weapons of Math Destruction, or uh, which is basically a book about algorithmic discrimination, as is Algorithms of Depression, and Data and Goliath is a, a, a book I highly recommend, even if it, it's rather depressing to read, about sort of data privacy in the modern era. And so we think well of all these books, and we're inspired, inspired by all these books, but because of our particular position on the, you know, sort of the front row of, of research communities, trying to look at these problems and say, well, what could we do about them inside of the code itself? Um, we sort of wanted to write a book that to the broadest audience that we, we could, can get um, sort of describes how you might do some of these things, okay? And just because it wasn't risky enough already for me to give a talk on this stuff for the very first time, I've decided to magnify that and try to give a talk it's almost entirely composed of images. Um, so I'm gonna, even though there's sort of equations and theorems behind practically everything I'm gonna say and certainly precise definitions, I'm not gonna give any of that because I don't think it's the most important thing to convey and we don't go into that level of detail uh, in the book. Um, and so I'm gonna see if I can get away with just sort of talking around a bunch of images, most of which are reproduced from the book. And so that you can really see, you know, how, how early we are in this process, you know, and, and when I said I just, we just gave the manuscripts today, you'll see that a number of these the, you know, figures that I'm going to show you are literally, you know, snapshots on my iPhone of a drawing I made on my whiteboard at Penn. Um, but, and, and those will, of course, be properly rendered by graphic artists in the final. But you, this is really how the sausage is made if, you, if, you're, if you're interested. <laughs> Um, so to, to sort of, I think, give the only slide I have that has any text bullets on it, um, I'm just going to quickly survey for you the sort of four high-level themes I'm going to take you through. And you, you can think of this as kind of, if you like, a, a, a very high-level survey about different parts of scientific research that are trying to think about algorithmic misbehavior of various types, or at least undesirable behavior about algorithms, and how you might fix that from a design standpoint. And the first two topics I'm going to talk about, you know, are also the first two chapters of the book. And we we wrote we we start the book with those two chapters because we think that these are the topics where there is the most to say right now from a scientific standpoint about algorithmic solutions to social misbehavior by algorithms. And so the first one of these is on privacy. And so in particular, I'm going to kind of just take you very briefly through what we view as a couple of reasonable but not you know sort of inappropriate definitions or notions of privacy and what we see the flaws of them are and then I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about what in our view is kind of the right definition of privacy and you should be a little bit suspicious about anybody who says there's a right definition of privacy but it, you know it's the right definition in the sense that a very large fraction or portion of the scientific community that thinks about technical definitions of privacy 
have sort of converged on this particular one. And it's also a very clarifying definition because it explicitly kind of calls out what you should reasonably expect from a definition of privacy and what you cannot reasonably expect from a definition of privacy, at least if we ever want to make valuable use of data in society. Okay? I'm going to then try to do the same thing for algorithmic fairness. Um, algorithmic fairness, it's interesting because, you know, as you write a book like this and talk to people and hear complaints about what you're writing, you, you know, you, you find out what people's hot button topics are. And one of the things that was interesting to me is how much more passionate people seem about definitions and discussions around algorithmic discrimination and, and fairness than they do about privacy, for instance. And at some point I realized, well, you know, one explanation for that is that you know, in, when there are violations of privacy in general, everybody is a victim of that violation, right? It doesn't, it doesn't fall along gender or racial lines for the most part when there is you know, some inadvertent leak of data due to a statistical model or Netflix releasing a data set to the research community. It harms sort of everybody equally. Whereas, of course, fairness and discrimination are particularly about, you know, sort of mistreating one population in favor of another population. And so it's sort of inevitable that the second topic becomes politicized, if you like, even though um, what we're trying to do in the book is depoliticize it as much as possible and sort of talk about what can we expect and what should we ask for. And so I'll do a similar thing for fairness as I did for privacy. Now, in the, the book and this talk will sort of take a little bit of a left turn midway through, but I hope it's a left turn that everybody will be able to hang on for from a conceptual standpoint. But, but the, the, next, the next topic in the book kind of makes the observation that when we think about violations of privacy or violations of fairness by algorithms or, or models, um, it, to a first approximation, we're not, we're not thinking of the peoples whose data went into those models or algorithms as being complicit in the process itself. And so what do I mean by that? So, you know, if, if aspects of your medical record are leaked by virtue of your participation in some study that built a statistical model to predict some disease based on patient rec records, um, you may not even be aware of it, right? So, you, you know, you, so we certainly can't kind of blame you for that. And you may not even be aware that your data was being used for this. Similarly, um, you know, if you're falsely denied a loan by some credit scoring model, you might not even know that an algorithm was behind that decision, and we certainly wouldn't think that it's your fault that such a mistake was made. A lot of situations in modern technology are much more nuanced, and it's not clear that we can solely place the blame for um, behaviors that we don't like on the algorithm itself. And these are basically settings in which you can almost think about there being some sort of strategic game theoretic interaction <coughs> between people, the data they generate, algorithms that ingest, algorithms or apps that ingest that data, that build predictive <coughs> models, that then in turn influence the service that you get from that app, change your behavior, and generate more data. To demystify this, like one concrete example of this is navigation apps, where you're basically using an app like Waze or Google Maps to help you do the most natural thing, optimize for yourself your driving time and going from point A to point B. But it's also doing that for everybody else simultaneously. And so if there's something about that sort of simultaneous greediness that we don't like, we can't really just blame the app for it because we were all complicit in the use of that app in deciding how to drive and any externalities like traffic that that inflicts on other people. And so 
in this next chapter, we're going to kind of be thinking about also situations in which perhaps the behavior of the algorithms or apps we're using is undesirable in some sense. But there are, there are people in the loop, and we have to kind of sort out the incentives and behavior of those people and not just sort of blindly blame the algorithm, OK? Um, and so sort of interesting, won't get into that very much, but in the book itself, we sort of take a game theoretic view of this. And so I'll talk a little bit about that. And then lastly, I'll talk about sort of a special case of you know, instances in which there's some complex feedback loop between people, algorithms, and data. Um, which is basically data-driven modern science. And so you know, our internal code name for this chapter between Aaron and myself is the p-hacking chapter, because this is really a chapter that's kind of taking this data-centric, model-driven machine learning view of modern scientific discovery and this sort of reproducibility crisis in the sciences that many of you may be familiar with that is basically a product of that. And again, um, throughout all of this, I want to sort of emphasize solutions. and you know, much of, not just much, but virtually all of the science I'm going to describe to you today is basically less than 10 years old. Some of it's less than a year old. And, you know, the, we're in no way proposing that, you know, privacy is all wrapped up or fairness is all wrapped up. Nothing is further from the truth. But we're just giving you kind of snapshots of areas where we think there's interesting work going on and promising work in the sense of designing better algorithms, um, you know, from, from the social perspective. Okay, so that's kind of the roadmap, and from here on out, it's going to just be pictures and cartoons. Um, so let me first talk about privacy and the power of randomization. And as I mentioned, I want to start off by sort of mentioning two pretty good tries at definitions of privacy that we view for different reasons as being fundamentally flawed. And, and just to say what they are, one of them are one of them is definitions of privacy that are based on some notion of anonymity or anonymization. The second one is basically cryptography as a notion of privacy. And then I'm going to use those to kind of morph to what we think is the right definition or much closer to the right definition, which is something known as differential privacy, which was kind of founded in about 2005 and has um, quite a bit of, of research behind it at this point. Um, but let me just first talk about anonymity. So, you know, many of you, I'm sure, have had the experience of, you know, reading missives from companies or end user license agreements that you're asked to click on and approve that basically say, oh, you know, don't worry, we anonymize all of our data sets or we remove PII, personally identifying information. And um, there are many, you know, my, my short advice is that anytime somebody proposes a definition based on those ideas to you, you should run as quickly as possible in the opposite direction. Um, and there are many, many reasons to, to believe that the more you think about definitions of anonymity. Um, but one of the key flaws of definitions of anonymity, um, where you're essentially coarsening the database that you started with in some way, in the hopes that you can't, you know, somebody can't pick out individual identities and connect them with your real world identity from the anonymized data. One of the fundamental flaws they make, and this again will kind of set up this discussion of differential privacy, is that these definitions act like the only data set that is ever going to exist or ever did exist in the world was the data set in front of you right now, okay? And the problem with that is that that's far from the truth. And almost, almost all of the interesting violations of privacy that you see these days, by interesting I mean things, as an example, something that's uninteresting but very unfortunate, is just sort of like, you know, 
people breaking into locked vaults of data like the Equifax breach, okay? So there was no inference that went on there, just like, you know, they, they, they got the keys to some database with a lot of financial information and then they had it. It wasn't even anonymized in the first place. It was locked down, but it wasn't anonymized. So what's the problem with an anonymization? So these, these two cartoon tables are trying to highlight that problem. Suppose at the top we had a hypothetical database of a hospital and um, you know, you have a neighbor, let's call her, I think we call her Rebecca in the book, and you happen to know that Rebecca is a 56-year-old woman because she's your neighbor, and you happen to know that she is a patient at this particular hospital, okay? And suppose for the sake of argument, um, you know, so, so she's, a, she's a patient at this hospital, and suppose for the sake of argument, this is the entire database of that hospital, and they've chosen to anonymize that database. And how have they done that anonymization here? Well, they've removed names. They don't give exact ages. They just give um, range of ages, okay? They give gender. They've blotted out the last two digits of zip codes and the like, okay? So already, even if this was the only database in the world, just the fact that you know that your neighbor, Rebecca, is a patient at this hospital, you can immediately see that there's only two candidates in this database for Rebecca, okay? And it's these two rows. And just from that, even if this was the only database in the world, um, you would know that either she has colitis or she has HIV, okay? You don't know which, it's true, but you know she has one of those two things, and this might be rather compromising private data that Rebecca would have preferred that you not have known, okay? Now, of course, the usual response to this by itself is to say, like, oh, well, the real, a real hospital database would have tens of thousands of such records, and there would be many hundreds of matches, for instance, for females in this age range, okay? So the real, and so that's why there's actually a definition called K-anonymity. The definition of K-anonymity says that, well, it shouldn't be the case that sort of based on what you know in the real world from any particular individual, you can map them to, in the, in the database, um, fewer than K individuals. So the bigger the K, the higher the privacy guarantee. If I guarantee it's 100 anonymous, it means that whatever I know about you, if I go look at the anonymized database, at least 100 match records match what I know about you, and therefore I would have a great deal of uncertainty about which of the records um, was yours. So the problem with that is what if there's a second database, okay? So this database with respect to what Rebecca is too anonymous, right? There's two records, records that match Rebecca. This database is, you know, this database, which is maybe a second hospital that Rebecca has been to, is three anonymous with respect to Rebecca because there's three records that match her age range and gender, okay? But now from the join of these two databases, well, from this database, you knew she either had colitis or HIV. And from this one, you knew she either has HIV, lupus, or a hip fracture. And so now you know she has HIV. You basically triangulated these two databases, each of which might have offered a high degree of anonymity in isolation. But when you start combining them, you quickly winnow down on highly specific facts about individuals. Some of you may have seen an article less than a month ago in the New York Times when they did a similar thing with location data. They got location data from a commercial vendor and they quickly found a person in the real world who they uniquely identified because of course she was the only person who on a daily basis made the 14 mile commute from her home to the upstate New York middle school where she taught math. Once they knew 
the identity of that particular person who made that commute, which they could easily find from sort of public records of the school, they found out all kinds of other things about her because now once they knew who that person was, they could see where else she drove and where else she went and they found medical clinics that she went to visit in the way, okay? So you get the idea and sort of, you know, this is why any definition of an anonymity is fundamentally flawed because once you start adding databases, each of which might be individually anonymous, you can quickly sort of zero in microscopically on, on particular individuals a process that's also often known as re-identification, okay? All right, so another good try at a definition of privacy um, is something called, it is cryptography, is modern cryptography. And modern cryptography, just to be clear, unlike anonymity, our general view, and I think the view of the entire computer science community, is that modern public key cryptography is a massive technological success. It has been, it's very valuable, it's very well understood, it's based on very well understood firm mathematical principles. It's just not a good definition of privacy. So cryptography and public key cryptography in general, the goal of it is to sort of lock data down so that you can control access to that data. So you can say who's allowed to see it and who's not allowed to see it, okay? In general, it's not a good definition of privacy because it basically doesn't tell you what sorts of inferences can be made from data. It just tells you who can access that data or not, okay? And I think in the interest of time, I won't say much about this slide, but you know, there's an entire, sort of one of the richest, most general tools that cryptography provides is something called secure multi-party computation, which allows you know, each of us holding our own private data to collectively compute in a secure way some function of all of our data. So for example, maybe all of us have our private information about what our salary is, and we'd like to figure out what the average salary of everybody in the room is, but we'd like to figure out the average salary of everybody in the room without, it, without doing it in the obvious way, which is having everybody announce their salary, we compute the average, and then everybody knows the average. Because if we do that computation in that way, not only do we learn the average, we learn a hell of a lot more. We learn the salary of everybody else in the room, okay? So cryptography, one of the things that cryptography tries to promise is ways of us computing that average of our salaries without any of us learning more than what is implied by the value of the average itself, okay? And the reason that's not a good definition of privacy, for instance, in that particular problem, is that actually doesn't address how much we might learn from the average, okay? So cryptography is just sort of like preventing you from learning more than you allegedly should, whereas the right definition of privacy should talk first about what you might learn from a particular data analysis or computation, not sort of how to prevent you from learning more than it, okay? And so this brings us to differential privacy. Um, and before I sort of give a cartoon of describing kind of what the definition of differential privacy is, I think it's important to set expectations about what we want to ask from a definition of privacy and what the implications of that are. So you could imagine by starting in a very, very ambitious way and basically give a definition of the following type. You know, so let, let's imagine that the thought experiment is, is that your data, um, you know, you're in control of your data, okay? Let's say it's your medical record. And you're trying to decide whether you're willing to allow your medical record 
to be used in some kind of um, some sort of statistical study. Let's say that the proposal is that researchers at the hospital are going to take all the medical records and they're going to build a regression model that predicts the probability that you know patients have a disease, some particular disease, based on um, test results and other aspects of their historical medical record. And you're kind of worried. Um, that and, and they're they're going to publish the they're going to publish their findings. They're not going to publish the data, but let's say they're going to publish the coefficients of the regression model in a Nature or Science paper, so that other researchers can look at that model and, and see which variables were important for predicting cancer and which variables were not important for predicting cancer. And you're worried that perhaps the publication of that model, combined perhaps with other data about you that's publicly available, might actually reveal information about your medical record, okay? So one, one definition of privacy we could try to ask for is to basically say like, well, you should only be willing to participate in, the, in this analysis if absolutely no harm comes to you as a result of that analysis, okay? So in other words, we're basically asking that we never do statistical analyses or make uses of data that cause bad things to happen to anyone, okay? So the problem with that definition is it's asking for too much and prevents us from ever making good use of data. And so let me give an example um, which is not so hypothetical. So suppose it's circa 1950 and you're asked to participate in a study that's gonna try to ask whether there are harmful effects of smoking. And you're a smoker because it's 1950 and everybody smokes in 1950. Nobody tries to hide it. There's no social stigma to it at all, okay? Um, and you're trying to, you're trying to, you're asking yourself, should I participate in the smoking study or should I not participate in the smoking study? So if we ask for the, and suppose it's going to be the case as it was, as I show in this paper, this is a kind of classic uh, paper by Dole and Hill from 1950 that first made this link. Um, you know, if I ask for the first definition, it, it, you know, we shouldn't allow this study to proceed if it's the case that you, for you, the smoker, the outcome of that study will have harmful effects, okay? But, you know, if the study, let's say the study is performed and there's this link that's, you know, established between smoking and lung cancer, and so now a real harm has been caused to you by this analysis, right? Because now everybody, you know, has a different view of your health because of the fact that you're a smoker and because of the study, and in particular, insurers might have a very different view of your health as a result of this study. So real harm has been caused to you by the result of this study. But we don't want to really forbid that because it, this study was going to find this link between smoking and lung cancer whether you participated or not. So the bad thing was going to happen to you whether you allowed this data to come, be your data to be used or not. Because basically the link between smoking and lung cancer is kind of a fact about the world. And that fact about the world can be discovered with sort of a large collection of anybody's data. Your data wasn't important to it, okay? It's kind of an aggregate statistical fact, okay? And so if we sort of adopt the definition that says like, oh, well, we should never allow any data analysis that causes anybody in or harm, we wouldn't allow things like this, which certainly we want to allow. And so the right counterfactual to ask is not whether harm was caused to you, but rather how much was the harm to you increased 
by your allowing your data to be used in the study compared to what, what the probability or magnitude of the harm would have been without your data in the study, okay? So that's the right comparison to make. It's not between sort of, you know, no harm at all versus harm. It's about the counterfactual, whether the harm was amplified by your participation in the study. And so this is what differential privacy tries to get at. And um, it, it exactly, you know, the formal definition kind of exactly encodes the intuition that I described. You, you kind of imagine that there's an algorithm that's going to take a bunch of people's, of, data, of people's data and here's yours, okay? And you're, you know, this algorithm is going to perform some computation and give some output, okay? And this algorithm would also have performed some computation and given some output if we'd simply removed your data from the database, just your data. So we're making a comparison between sort of two adjacent databases, the complete database and the database without just your data. And so these are two different inputs to the algorithm. And basically what you ask in differential privacy is that no matter whose data we remove in isolation from the data set, the thing that the algorithm computes doesn't change by very much. Okay? Okay, now the technical part is how you define not changing very much. But let me give an example of a differentially private algorithm just to demystify this a bit. Um, let's suppose we're going to compute the average of everybody's salary in the room. The normal way to do it would be to you know, take the database which consists of everybody's salary, compute the average, and release it to like numerical precision. Like the average salary is you know, you know, $57,612.92 or something like that. Okay? So that's not a differentially private algorithm because if we remove even one person's salary and rerun the computation, it'll come up with a very similar number, but it'll be slightly different in the numerical details. And the worry, and it's not an abstract hypothetical worry, is that one might be able, when combining the output of that computation with other stuff, to back out the individual salaries of people in the computation. Here is a differentially private mechanism or algorithm. We're going to do the same thing. We're going to gather everybody's salary. We're going to compute the average to numerical precision. But now we're going to add noise to that output. Okay, we're going to add a random number to the average that we computed. And then we're going to output the average, that we're going to output the, the perturbed value after adding the noise. Okay? And the question is like, well, what should this noise look like? It's going to look like sort of symmetric Gaussian noise. And how much of this noise should we add? So it turns out you can sort of prove very strong things about this simple algorithm as long as sort of the magnitude of the num the noise that you add to the number that we compute is sort of on the order of one over the square root of the number of people involved in the computation. Okay, and the reason this is important is that one over the square root of the number of people goes down as the number of people increases. So the larger the database of salaries we have, the less noise we have to add to provide uh, privacy to any individual. And so for those of you with a bit of a statistics background, sort of the one over square root of n sort of naturally arises because it's essentially, you know, the inverse of the standard deviation of, uh, you know, a bunch of random number of, of n random numbers of roughly the same scale, okay? And so this is the idea of differential privacy. Those of you from a social science background, um, might be familiar with randomized response as a survey mechanism. So if you are, um, randomized response, which was, I think, first introduced back in the 1960s as a way of kind of eliciting truthful answers to embarrassing questions like, you know, do you have a sexually transmitted disease? Um, randomized response is actually a differentially private mechanism. 
the definition of differential privacy didn't come for another 30 years, but in hindsight, that particular survey mechanism uh, obeys differential privacy. Okay. Um, um, so just to say a little bit about the real world for a minute, so differential privacy is, you know, first was introduced, um, I think, in roughly 2005 and is now pushing 20 years of very, very active research. And now it's starting to really make it out into the real world. Um, so this is just from the C, this is a, a photo taken at the CES, the Consumer Electronics Conference in Las Vegas every year uh, last week, where Apple basically bought the side of a hotel and, you know, obnoxiously put a billboard up there. But in particular, um, if any of you are um, iPhone users and you have one of the more recent versions of iOS on your phone, it uses differential privacy to report your app usage to the mothership in, um, in Cupertino. So Apple's quite interested um, and their developers are quite interested in knowing the popularity of different apps on their devices. But Apple is also naturally um, cognizant of the fact that individual users might be concerned about the exact statistics of their app usage being sent to Apple. And so they basically do something like I just described. On your phone, periodically, your phone will take the usage statistics, your usage statistics of your app, and it'll add some random noise to those numbers, and it'll send that to Apple in a way that promises that Apple cannot accurately figure out what any individual, any individual's app usage actually is to any degree of accuracy. But when you aggregate all of these noisy app usage statistics and average them together, you get a very, very accurate estimate of the aggregate app usage, which is all they care about anyway. Even more ambitiously and perhaps frighteningly, um, the 2020 U.S. Census is going to every single statistic or report they release as a result of the census data, they are going to release in a differentially private way. So, you know, think at a high level rather than poor reporting things like, you know, average income, you know, um, at the individual household level or even the block level, they're going to be adding noise to those numbers so that any individual such number will essentially be largely noise, but it'll possibly be possible to aggregate them at a high level and get very accurate estimates. Okay, um, let me skip this. There, there are very interesting kind of things that happen all the time, including these recent cold case genealogy, things like the Golden State Killer um, being caught as a result of uploading um, uh, sequenced DNA, but, but in the interest of time, let me move on. So let me talk a little bit about fairness. Um, so fairness, as I said, is more of a hot button topic um, in general than privacy, it seems, at least, at least in research and academic communities. Um, and, and again, you know, I think our view is that there have been a number of proposals for definitions of fairness, including some of them not only in wide use, but actually um, encoded in at least US laws that we think are fundamentally flawed. And so I want to talk about one such example and then talk about things that I think are a little bit more sensible. So, so one attempt at definitions, some definitions of fairness, um, especially older ones, like the ones that operate in lending and credit in the United States, try to enforce fairness or protect some particular group 
essentially by forbidding that you use the protected attribute as an input to your algorithm or model. Okay. So this would be common in race. So in the United States, there are laws that basically say, if you're building models that are making lending decisions or are doing credit scoring for consumers, it is against the law for race to be a variable that's input into your decision process. Okay, you're forbidden from using race. Okay, And I think these laws perhaps made sense, maybe not, when they were introduced, when we didn't live in an era where so much data was available about us, right? So, you know, in the old days, you know, think back maybe in the 70s when, um, you know, and by the, by the way, even in the 70s, there were people using neural networks to do things like credit scoring. And, you know, back in those days, they wouldn't know much about you in terms of a lending decision other than your credit history, your employment history, and whatever demographics they do about you. And so maybe then it made sense to sort of say like, okay, don't use, you know, even though you know race, don't use it as an input. Now these definitions are completely nonsensical because there are so many proxies for race. The idea of forbidding me from using race, there's so many other ways I can figure out your race other than being told it directly. So for example, at least in the United States, it is unfortunately the case that your zip code already is an extremely accurate proxy on average for your race, okay? More generally, you have papers like this, which is a paper from about five years ago, so ago, from the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, in which it was shown that just from people's like data on Facebook, nothing else on Facebook, nothing about who your friends are, nothing about any demographics you've declared, nothing about your conversations on Facebook, just from the content that you've given a thumbs up to, just the clicks that, on, that you've given thumbs up to, you can accurately predict things like whether you're single or in a relationship, whether you are the child of divorced parents, your drug and alcohol use, um, what your sexual orientation, your religion, et cetera, et cetera, okay? So in an era where we have so much of our data out there publicly available, maybe that we've openly revealed, and the fact that you can figure out these things, at least statistically, in an accurate sense, the idea of sort of forbidding the use of anything kind of makes no sense. A more sensible thing is to, instead of kind of restricting the inputs to models or algorithms, to try to sort of enforce fairness at the outcome. Basically say, if you're predicting who to give loans to, use anything you want, but be sure that the decisions you make are fair in some quantitative sense, okay? And so I promised you um, hand-drawn figures from my whiteboard. So here, here's an example. So, so here's like you know. So here's an example of such, of a quantitative definition of fairness that sort of is, is restricting the behavior at the output rather than the input. So imagine a hypothetical example in which um, we're we're in college admissions and we're trying to build a predictive model from historical data to decide who to admit to our college based purely on SAT scores. Just a one-dimensional problem. All we care about is your SAT scores, okay? And so I have SAT scores arranged on a line from low to high. Each circle represents an applicant with that corresponding SAT score. And, you know, why are we using these SAT scores? What is it we're trying to predict from SAT scores? Well, we're trying to predict success in college, okay? And let's pick a definition of success in college, like you, know, you succeeded in college if you graduated within five years of arriving with at least a 3.0 GPA. Okay, pick your favorite definition. Okay, and so the pluses and minuses on these circles indicate from our historical data, you know, this is somebody with this SAT score who succeeded. 
this is somebody with this SAT score who did not succeed, okay? Um, and so that's what our data looks like. And um, the data, though, happens to be from two different demographic groups. There's two races. There's the blues and there's the greens, okay? And so each circle, the color tells you the race, the value on the, the line here tells you their SAT score, and the plus or minus tells you whether they succeeded. If all we care about is predictive accuracy and not fairness, we're just going to ignore race, and we're going to basically pick, you know, like with this kind of data and this one-dimensional problem, there's sort of only one sensible type of model to build, right? Which is to pick a threshold and say, like, we're going to admit everybody with an SAT score above that value and reject everybody below that value, okay? And so, you know, take my word for it, if, if we're just trying to maximize predictive accuracy on the historical data, um, this is the optimal model, right? Because of how many mistakes does it make? Well, the mistakes are any student that we let in that failed, like this one, or any student that we rejected that succeeded, like this one, okay? And so we make uh, however many mistakes here. It's like, I think it's seven, like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, okay? And that's, you can take my word for it, if you try all the different thresholds, this one has the lowest error. But this model is quite unfair from a racial standpoint. 